0: There, it's like nice weather for a duck. Can you uh, make that? Yeah, there we go. Thank you very much. Um, this is my book that we've been talking about, Destined to Win. And uh, I'm going to give away a couple copies here and a couple in the, other, in the overflow room. Um, you know, I... hi lady. What's your issue? Okay. There's three of you. Yeah. Awesome. Yes, you do. (laughs) So, um, I wrote this book. You need to get one more book for these girls. Okay. Um, um, Okay, be quiet. I'm talking now. No, no, no. wait, stay. I said we're going to give you three. It's good. I'm going to pray. and God's going to multiply the books. Here, you can have those. And then you, Kathy, you come to the table tonight. Kathy will give you one, okay? Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah, awesome. Um, but I just want to just tell you just a little bit about that book, and it's it's partly what I'm talking about tonight. You know, um, I have how many of you read uh, Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren? I read the book cover to cover. I Thought it was a great book. Um, and it basically, that the book, the theme of that book is that you have a purpose, that you're not an amoeba that you know crawled out from the sea. But you were literally made, created in the image of God. And you were created for a purpose. And uh, when I got done reading that, put, that book, I was just really, really encouraged. And I, that book sold like six million copies the first year, which is just, that's just an amazing number. But I, I started thinking like, once you tell someone they have a purpose, what's the next question? <laughs> How do I find my purpose? And so, you know, we're always telling people, you have a purpose. And people are like, what is it? I don't know. <laughs> and so, uh, probably a couple of years ago, that that question has been so asked um, over and over, especially in a prophetic culture, right? They're like, what's God want me to do? It's like, read your Bible. You know, something like that. And so, I thought that I'd, I'd write a book about how do you actually find your destiny? Um, how do you find your purpose? And I did a whole teaching series here about maybe a couple of years ago about if you find your people, you'll find your destiny. And then people just flooded me with emails like, how do I find my people? <laughs> that's a good question. Ask Bill. Bill knows everything.
1: <laughs>
0: and so anyway, that's a, it's a book that I, I think is quite different than most of my books in that it's, um, it's not about the supernatural, but it is about you finding your people, your purpose, your destiny. So we'll grab a hand, let's pray. We'll get a date first. <clears throat> Some of you need to find your people, just need to squeeze a hand right now and just like get a date. So if you want to date the person sitting next to you and you're single and they're single and they're all opposite sex, then just squeeze their hand. This is, this is true speed dating right here. This is, In fact, you can just squeeze twice. That means, will you marry me? And if yes, just squeeze back and we'll just do that right there. So awesome. Okay, let go of hands. Now let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we just pray for your blessing tonight on our minds and our hearts that you would just open us up to new things in God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. A couple came up at the book signing early, earlier this morning, I think it was in an early service, and said that uh, they squeezed hands and now they're getting married, they're engaged. So, and I have a picture here somebody, yeah, see this person right here? That's the last person that got married from squeezing hands. So for those of you that think this is silly, I would say, the dream is alive. <laughs> Yes. So, um, last week, for those of you that were absent and tardy, um, I I taught about um, belonging, the power of belonging. And I want to kind of do part two of that. I'm going to do some um, review because of the people who sinned against God and didn't come. Of course, I'm teasing you. Um, I want to talk about our land, our city, and our people. And so, um, last week I was talking about The um, TED Talk that Brene Brown did called The Power of Vulnerability. By the way, how many of you have not seen that TED Talk called The Power of Vulnerability? Uh, I really want to encourage you. It's free. It's TED Talk. uh, It's a 16 or 17 minute video. I think that Brene, Brene, it's B-R-E-N-E, Brene Brown. It's the number one TED Talk, probably because I keep getting up here and giving her a plug. She should send me a tithe, at least. But she has uh, she's a um, social scientist. She has three degrees in social work, and a very brilliant woman. And um, to make a long story short, um, in fact, if you watch the TED talk, she's, you, it's going to do a hundred times better just um, uh, disp- telling you about um, her her thoughts than I'm going to. But um, when I, my son sent me that TED talk and said, "Dad, you need to listen to this." And it's one of those things that you know, because it's your son, you're like, "Okay, I'm I'm gonna." I want to be able to say I listen to it, but I'm not really interested. So I clicked on the TED Talk, and it was running while I was watching TV. And pretty soon, after about two minutes, I'm like, I was more interested in the TED Talk than television, so I'm like, wow, this is better than Blue Blitz. And I turned off the television, and I started taking notes, and I took 16 pages of notes. And I watched the video. I probably have watched it 10 or 15, 20 times now. And what was... Uh, what was really cool about the TED Talk was that it put words to something I felt. How many of you have ever had someone preach a message or you read a book or, or you hear some kind of a talk like that, and somebody puts words to a, a sense that you already had? I had tears running down my eyes, and I'm like, this lady has put words to something I've been carrying. Probably lots of people have been carrying for years. And and she was, and she, and, and I just want to capture this part. She said... She, um, she was studying, for, uh, I, I think she wasn't a believer at the time, she was later on, she became a believer. I think that's the story, I, I haven't, didn't hear that firsthand from her. But um, she's not talking on the TED talk as a believer, she's talking as a social scientist. And she, she, um, she had this passion about, and she asked the question, is there one thing that every single human, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnic group, or, um, or country, or, you know, whatever. Is there, is there one thing that all humans have in common? Is there one need? Would there be one common need that would be shared among all humanity? And after two years of research, she, this, I'll, I'll, I'll quote her, she said we are all, she learned, that we are all neuro, neurobiologically wired for connection. The word belonging we all have this one thing in common. We all have an incredible need to be connected, to belong, to have a people, to be known. And so you'll have to listen to the TED Talk, and I actually um, uh, took some some of the notes I took from her TED Talk, and when I wrote the book, Dust in the Wind, it's actually, I used some of her TED Talk in the Dust in the Wind book, just quoting her about how people actually find connection and she said the greatest enemy of connection is shame. And she said shame, she said, she used the word combination, we would say conviction. She said conviction or combination says I did something wrong. But shame says I am something wrong. And when I believe I am something wrong, I have a deep fear that you're going to find out that I actually am something wrong. And so um, the, it's a really powerful TED talk. I actually um, spoke on it several times, but I wanted to talk um, tonight a little bit about belonging and about connection. And belonging means, number one, I'm going to give you um, eight qualities of belonging. There could be 20. These are the ones that I got when I was preparing. Number one, belonging. I carry the family name. I have an identity. This is really important. You know, we're in a cohabiting um, environment where people have children without getting married there was an old song um (laughs) you'd have to be close to my age which is like dinosaur-ish you know i was telling last week i said you know i get on the oldies station and they're sharing 90s songs and calling it oldies like that is an insult that is not oldies There's an old song called Love Child that was sang by the Supremes. I don't know how many of you are old enough that you remember that song or your mama or daddy played that song. It says, love child never meant to be, love child born in poverty, love child always second best, love child different than the rest. And she's singing, it's this woman singing to her boyfriend. He evidently wants to have sex with her and she's saying, if we have sex, we'll have a love child. And then she goes on to share that she was a love child born out of wedlock with no name and she talks about the shame of no name this is in 1962 or 63 and the point is is that there was a season where people understood that not having a name created shame now we have now we have a whole environment we have a culture i'm talking about a global culture that actually embraces this idea of having children. Now we don't even have to have a mom and dad. We can have two dads. We can have two moms. And we're losing the whole concept of uh, one A big piece of belonging is I have a name. I actually have a people. I actually can say, these are my people. Number two, I am known. I have a community. I'm a part of a community. Number three, I'm accepted. I have a people. Number four, I am valued. I am significant. Number five, I have ownership. I actually have a place. Number six, I have a responsibility. I have a role. Number seven, I have common core values. I think like a group of people. Number eight, I have the same vision. We have a common purpose. And I was telling this story uh, last week. Uh, we lived obviously um, in Weaverville, this little tiny community, three thousand people, and, and um, I know I was I was in a store, Tops Market. We have these two little C stores, uh, convenience stores in our town, just two of them. And uh, the owner of those two stores happened to be my next door neighbor. And so I went in after work one day. I'm all greasy. I was working on cars that that day, and I walk into the uh, into Tops Mini Mart, and there's two teenagers in there, probably seventeen, eighteen years old, and. And they were walking around the store and putting, stuffing stu- putting stuff in their pockets. And I'm like, okay, I wonder if they're going to pay for it. doesn't look like they're going to pay for it. And so I kind of just stood back and got my stuff, but waited for them to go first. And they finally come to the counter, and they, they get a couple packs of gum, and they're like, I'd like to pay for this gum. And I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. You're in my city, <laughs> Are you with me? See, when I have, when I belong, I don't just belong to a people. I belong to a land. You're in my city, and you're in a store that belongs to my neighbor, and you are not going to steal from a store in my city. So I wait to make sure they're not going to take stuff out of their pockets when it's obvious they're not. I said, "Hey guys, are you going to pay for that stuff that's in your pockets?" They said, "We don't have stuff in our pockets." I said, "I grabbed the one kid and I started shaking him, and stuff fell out of his pockets." I said, how about that stuff? And the guy behind the counter, young man, I said, they're stealing. Call the police. He goes, oh, it's none of my business. I said, I'll be talking to your boss in the morning. And I will make it your business. And it is my business. If you guys don't put that stuff back, I will be calling the sheriff. And I will wait for him to come. Your choice. They put the stuff back. My point is... When you have a people and a place, you have a responsibility to that place. Are you with me? You don't just suck up air and take up room. But you actually have a responsibility in your city because you have a city, you have a place, and what happens in that place is your responsibility. Are you following me? There's six qualities of belonging that I want to just kind of talk through tonight. The first one is loyalty. Loyalty doesn't mean that we agree. It means we're together. And loyalties actually test it when we don't agree. How many of you know that if we agree, you don't know if I'm loyal? Because I was going to do what you wanted to do anyway because we think the same way. But loyalties test it when I don't agree. What happens when you and I don't agree? That's when loyalty is actually tested. So sometimes, you know, when we want to control people, we redefine the terms. Like, loyalty means you agree with me. No, actually, if I have to agree with you, that's called manipulation and control. I don't preach to convince you, I preach to inspire you. It's your job to think. Loyalty means that you're with us even when you don't agree. How many of you are part of a family? How many of you always agree with all the members of the family? But when you disagree, are you not still a member of the family? Yeah. Absolutely. So loyalty is a, is a virtue of belonging. It's like people want to belong, but they're not loyal. Loyalty means that when someone's talking about your wife, your leader, your friend, that you aren't silent. Here we go. Loyalty means that when you're talking bad about my woman but I don't stand silent and let you think I agree. Loyalty means that when you're talking bad about my city, that I step in and go, well, that may be true, but let me tell you some good stuff that's happening in my city. In other words, it's my city. I don't want you talking bad about my city. <laughs> Here we go. Loyalty means that when people talking bad about your church, on your Facebook page, then you know what button to push. (laughs) I'm simply saying, if you're loyal to someone, you can't be silent. I remember years ago that there was a a woman in our church, a very powerful woman in our church, in our little church. And you know, in a small community, everybody knows everybody's business, right? Kind of like Redding. And on Facebook, it's a very small community and everybody knows everybody's business, even though they don't. But anyway, I remember this, this lady, she comes up to me and she's like, you know, I don't like the way you're treating your wife. And she starts telling me she doesn't like the way I treat my wife and da-da-da. I'm like, wow. So I got, came home and I said to Kathy, you know, so-and-so says she doesn't like the way I treat you. And she's like, why? I said, I don't know. She said these things. I didn't... I didn't finish my sentence before Kathy had her on the phone. And I hear her say, this is my husband. If you have something to say about my husband, you come talk to me. And she's telling this woman, this is what my husband does for me. You don't know that because you're not in my house. And by the way, if you have something negative to say about my husband from now on, you'll be dealing with me. I'm like, whoa. I'm saying there's something about loyalty that causes you not to be silent when someone's talking about your people, your place, your church, your stuff. I can't tell you how many times I've sat, I've sat in a room where someone says something about some, some of my friends and, I, and I, my other friends are around too and they they're sit there silent. and I'm like, okay, you're not going to speak up, I'm going to. I remember uh, a few years ago I, was, they, I got invited to a prophetic round table it wasn 't round, and it wasn 't a table <laughs> and it was very little prophetic but anyway <laughs> and there was a bunch of prophets there, about forty of us uh, they got to be and we got a chance to share and it was great it was actually i 'm being kind of funny, but there was some really good stuff at it. I really appreciate the guy who invited me. And we were, you know, they were just dialogue, and everybody had, you had, if you you raised your hand, you had an opportunity to give a three-minute little, and I like the fact that they limited it, because preachers like to talk and hear themselves talk. Well, this guy sitting behind me starts talking about one of my friend's books. And I'm like, and he goes, yeah, and I I read this book, and, uh, you know, it's just a bunch of bull, and he's going on like that, like one of my close friends. So, you know, my blood's boiling, it's day one, I'm supposed to be there for three days. My friend invited me, I only know about five people in the room, but he's talking about my friend, and he's talking about him publicly. So, after about ten minutes, which he was only supposed to take three, I turned around and I said, first of all, you're full of crap. Secondly, you're talking about my friend. And thirdly, you must have not read the whole book because you didn't actually get the point of the book. See, loyalty causes me... I can't sit there silent, whether or not the guy who invited me rejects me or the other 39 people in the room are mad at me. I am not going to sit there and let someone talk about my friend when he belongs to me and I belong to him. This is part of being part of a family. This is part of a family, that I have your back, you have my back, and if someone talks bad about me in your presence, you cannot sit there silently while they do it. That is not loyalty, that's called chicken (laughs) hood. Can I get an amen? Number two, sacrifice. Sacrifice is the key to relationships, and I've shared this quote several times. Marriage is a death march to a life camp. People are like you've been married 41 years. How did you do that? I take care of her needs; she takes care of mine. When I start looking over after my needs instead of hers, and she starts looking after her needs, our marriage is in trouble. I love uh, Eric quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul says to the to the woman, "You don't own your body; the man does." I've said that to my wife several times. <laughs> the next verse says to the husbands, "You don't own your own body." A woman does. Your wife does. It's actually woman and, and husband. And I'm like, this body's yours. <laughs> Do with it as you please. <laughs> hey, I'm quoting the scriptures. You can look it up. First Corinthians chapter 11. Just look it up. I'm just, you can be embarrassed, but it's in the Bible. And I'm saying, listen, marriage is about sacrifice. It's about sacrifice. It's about doing the right thing when you don't feel like it. Belonging is about sacrifice. I don't feel like I belong. Lay down your life. (laughs) Well, then what's going to happen? You'll be dead. (laughs) And you'll be alive. Like the way to life is actually to give yours up for someone else. Uh, You know, we have this uh, concept, and I I understand it. It's it's kind of funny to me, but people say, I fell in love with that woman. I'm like, don't fall in love with the person. Don't marry the person you fell in love with, because a fall is an accident. And if you fall in love with them, you'll need to grow in love with them, because what you did on accident, you'll need to do on purpose. Follow me for a minute. Lots of marriages end because I'm not in love anymore. That's because you fell. You didn't grow. Because love has a feeling. How many know love has a feeling, but love is not a feeling? Good word, Chris. I want to belong. What do I have to do? I have to sacrifice. I want to be a part of a body. Then lay down your life. Serve somewhere. I got so excited the other, uh, last Sunday morning, it was pouring rain. I got here early for our prayer meeting, because I'm holy. <laughs> Holier than all of you who came late. <sighs> I'm <just> close joking. <sighs> I, got, I did get here early, and there was five or six guys and gals in yellow vests, orange vests, getting ready to go out to direct traffic for free in the rain. <laughs> I just walked by them and just, like, tears got rent. I mean, I didn't know it was going to happen. It was one of those things. I'm like, wow, that's so amazing. God is so touched by the simple service of people who are way more qualified than directing traffic, but they're out there in the rain at 7 o'clock in the morning to serve you. Like, how do I fit in? Find a place to serve. Well, I, I want to be on the prophetic teams. Well, maybe you need to be on the directing traffic teams. Maybe you need to be on the homeless feeding team. Maybe you just need to find a place to serve before you have a name. Number three, how do I, how do I belong? Number three, honesty. Honesty is a foundation of trust, and honesty is the fruit of being truthful when it costs you. I, I'm, I, I, um, I worked for a man who was uh, a beautiful man in so many ways, but he was a chronic liar. I mean, he—he, he, in fact, he lied so much he couldn't remember the truth. <laughs> and it was—it was so difficult because I worked for him for seven years, a man I still love very much, and he taught me a lot about life. And he was a man who—he taught me that a man should be confident. He said to me, "When people, when you're not confident, people won't follow you." And but, but he was a chronic liar. It was so difficult on a relationship because. He literally would lie so much that he couldn't remember that if it, what he was thinking was the truth or the story he told. And I remember, um, for about he and you know I was his uh, his service manager for a long, long time, and uh, in two different shops, and and he would get me in a position where I ended up having to lie for him. And so he would say, "Tell Mrs. Jones that her car's almost done," and well, we hadn't even started on it yet. So I would say, Mrs. Jones, you, you know, and it was that kind of thing. I'd get in these constant situations where I was kind of in this triangle like, okay, well, am I going to be loyal to my boss or am I going to make him look bad? And so when we moved to Weaverville, I went to work for him there also. I worked for him in the Bay. And, uh, and the Lord really convicted me. I was probably four years into working for him. And the Lord convicted me and said, you'll not compromise your nobility for anyone. So I, because I had lied for him for four years to our customers... It was never stuff like to get their money. It was just about their car being done. I'm not justifying it. I'm saying it wasn't like, you know, we didn't fix something and said we did. It wasn't any of that stuff. He wasn't, he wasn't dishonest in that way. In fact, he was very generous. He just made up stories. So <laughs> I sat with him one night... I had that that morning, I had been praying and I felt so convicted. In fact, the last two or three times that week that I had lied for him, I felt so bad. I felt unclean. You know when the Lord is dealing with you? Like, for actually, for three years, it didn't bother me. I know it should have, but it didn't. It's not that I didn't know it was wrong, but I didn't have this Holy Spirit conviction. I just had the it's wrong conviction. But the last few months of that, I just like, I would just like feel sick about myself. And I'd be in a constant state of asking the Lord to forgive me. And then I, I, then one morning in prayer, I felt like the Lord said, is he your God or if I, is, am I your God? Because if you're, if you're afraid of him, then he's your God. So I sat with him one night. After, I w- after work, I said, hey, can you stay? I, I need to talk to you. And so we sat down and, and I said, hey, I'm not going to lie for you anymore. because oh, I don't require you to lie for me. <laughs> I'm like, that's a lie. <laughs> you just lied again. So I said, yeah, you do. You required me to lie for you. And I, I really, I'm, you know, I'm growing in the Lord and I, I really want to live a noble life and that means I have to be honest because my word needs to be my bond. Which my grandfather, who wasn't a believer till the last six months of his life, said, your word is your bond. My grandfather refused to sign documents. He said, if I gave my word, it's my word. And so I, I gave him, I told him that story and I said, you know, I grew up in a family that didn't lie and I'm with you and you lie daily. I don't lie. I said, okay, well, listen, we're not even going to have this dialogue. All I'm saying to you is, you do whatever you want with the customer, but don't get me in the middle of it. That's what I'm telling you. I'm not going to walk out and tell the customer you lied. I'm just saying, I'm not going to lie for you. <laughs> the next day, <laughs> you know, we were just swamped, and you know how it is in auto repair. Sometimes the car that you think is going to take an hour, it takes three, and it's just, it's just a hard business that way. And so... Mr. Jones calls, who's one of our biggest customers, and he says, Hey, uh, Chris, is my car done? I said, um, Let me check. Hang on. Uh, Bill, he wants to know if your car's done. He said, Tell him we'll, it's almost done. We'll have it done in an hour. So we hadn't started on it yet. It wasn't even in the shop. So I said, Mr. Jones, uh, Bill said your car will be done in an hour. He said, Well, w- will my car be done in an hour? I said, No. <laughs> he said, Well, how far along are you on it? I said, we haven't started on it yet. He said, you said that it's almost done and it'll be done in an hour. I said, no, I I said that Bill said that. (laughs) He said, okay, (laughs) no, he's like trying to figure out what am I doing? He said, okay, let me start over. Have you worked on my car? No. Will my car be done in an hour? No, sir. But you said it would be done. No, sir. I said, Bill said to tell you that your car would be done. (laughs) He said, with a few choice words in between, are you saying that your boss is lying to me? Yes, sir, that's exactly right. He's lying to you. (laughs) My boss is standing right here, turning bright red. He said, don't touch my car. I'll be there to pick it up in a few minutes. I said, okay, thank you. I hung up the phone. I said, Mr. Jones says he's coming to pick his car up, not to touch it. Did you? I said, I'll be going home now. And I quit. And three months later, I went back to work for the same guy with an understanding. I will not lie for you. I'm a noble man. I'm sorry that my belonging is first to the Lord. I am your friend but I'm not following you. I'm following him. Now, if you were going the same way, I wouldn't mind following you as you follow him, but you ain't. <laughs> Honesty. Help me know. You want to belong? Learn to be honest. I have obviously been in a place of leadership here for 19 years. I've um, had lots of staff... And myself have problems. People make mistakes. I've had them in my office and I say, did you do this, this, and this? And when they know there's a consequence and they go, I did that. At this moment, I wish I didn't, but I did do that. Even though there's usually a consequence to their behavior, I grow in trust with them. And I'm like, even though you made the wrong decision, you and I's relationship just grew deeper because you told the truth when you knew there was a consequence. How many understand that's how you build trust? And number four is trust. Trust is built when you create expect- expectations you fulfill. Let me say it again trust is built when you create expectations you actually fulfill. Here's the challenge. In our environment, we're in a faith environment, right? Faith. It's by faith. Abraham, da-da-da. It's by faith. Which means we are trying to get people healed. And we're saying to people, Hey, if you believe Jesus, he'll heal your body. How many know we're creating expectations? The challenge is is that we're, we're putting expectations on faith. And sometimes people don't get healed. And so we're in this if you will, this strange w- world of, of tension, if I said to people, we're going to pray right now for people to get healed and all of you that have a bad back are going to get healed tonight except for a few. How many you know if there was 100 people who were going to get healed, only 50 will get healed because they'll all think I'm the one who wasn't supposed to be healed. So what happens when you dumb down expectation is you lower faith in people's lives. The other side of that is is that we create expectation that sometimes doesn't get fulfilled when we're trying to move in faith. And this is a challenge for us because how many understand that when you create expectation you don't fulfill, you break trust. When you create expectation in the lives of people that you don't fulfill, you break trust. And so I'm forever in this... It, from a, a, my public life, is a, this is the part of my public life that feels a little different than everywhere else because we have to create expectation in people so that they'll actually believe, so that they'll actually get healed. And when they don't get healed, or they don't get what they, what you, what you felt God promised, you can't say it's your fault. Because then we create this other dynamic, like something wrong with you. And how many know there wasn't, you know? How many know that you can be healed according to your faith? But Lazarus didn't have much faith when he was dead. So I remind myself, it's not always like that. And I am continually saying to my team. Under promise and overperform. You know why? Because that builds trust. When I under promise and overperform, I, I I have lots of um, a big, big team around us. We have this big team around us, amazing team. And sometimes in the midst of them trying to please me or please Bill or Eric or one of the team, they're like, "We're going to do this," and I'm like, "That's probably not going to happen." And you know what happens when you promise something that you actually don't that you actually don't perform. The next time you go, it's this big, I go, probably not. Probably not. So, trust is really important. Let me just say something about marriage. Don't have any secrets. Don't have secrets in your marriage. Don't have anything that you can't tell your wife. Don't have anything you can't tell your husband. I, I have friends that they have a secret place where they hide money from their Wives, in their wallet. I have this secret place. My wife doesn't know I have this $150. Trust isn't worth $150. It's not worth $150 to break trust. It's not worth $150 for for my wife to not be able to look at all my text messages. It's not worth $150 for her to not be able to look at all my emails. It's... it's (laughs) Let's see. How are we going to do this? It's really important that the way you meet your sexual needs is agreed upon. That there's no secrets. There's nothing happening in secret that your husband can walk in on. Your wife could walk in on. And you would be, oh, yeah, well. It's a mixed crowd, so you need to read between lines. I'm saying it's really, really important. See, trust is the foundation of all relationships. The toughest thing when someone violates their marriage, let's say an adulterous relationship, is not the forgiveness. That's hard. The hardest thing is, how do I ever trust you again? If you're 20 minutes late, see, you've been telling me for four years that your boss kept you over, you had to do this, and now I find out that there was something else going on. So now, every time you're late, I have this thing that comes up in me and goes, are you telling me the truth because you lied to me for four years? And what I'm getting at is this. Once you break trust... I would say trust is one of the hardest things in your life to restore. And so, trust. You want to belong? Be trustworthy. Number five, authenticity. If I want to belong, I have to be real. With so many people, that, there's so much pressure to perform in our culture. People are like chameleons, you know, it's like they change color, they change opinions. I can't tell me how many times I've been in a room where someone's told me their opinion and and then I, I, I'm in a room with them where that's not the popular opinion and they're, they're sharing the opposite opinion. And I'm like, dude, be real. Like, if I was saying this and you didn't agree with it, you don't have to say I disagree. You can just be quiet, but you don't have to tell a story as if you agree. I'm just saying, be, be real. Authenticity is important. I'd rather be hated for who I am than loved for who I'm not. Number six. And the last one that I, that I have on this list is perseverance. People give up too easy. We've got to ditch the cohabiting value system, and embrace longevity, endurance, and develop covenant communities. You know, uh, I think Bill had this great quote. He said, um, he was quoting someone else, but he said, we are of the generation. He said, I'm of the generation that didn't throw things out, but they fixed them. I think that's really beautiful. It's like cohabiting is kind of like, I don't want to marry you because... It might not be good next month. I'll stay with you as long as you please me. That's cohabiting. That's not covenant. Covenant means I laid down my life for you. I'm died, I've died for you. Oh, the church, you know, I don't know. I don't like what Pastor Bill's been preaching the last few months. I'll go somewhere else. Or change, drop my Bethel's TV subscription. Anyway, that's just it. A- I'm saying part of belonging is we press through. We persevere. This is part of having a good marriage. It's like you don't wake up every day with like butterflies in your stomach for the person you're, you know, sleeping with. It's like, you know, it's like you have times when you feel great and you have times when you don't. Uh, the difference between you being noble and, be, and cohabiting is what do you do when you don't feel like it? Are you with me? That's great. I shared a few months ago that, you know, some some I've I've been I've married did marriage counseling for so many years when I first came here that, and it's I don't know why but it's typically the guy I'm sorry I am a guy so I can stereotype us I guess, even though I'm going to probably make a bunch of guys mad, but guys are seem almost always surprised when their wife finally says My, our marriage is over, and they're like I took you to Paris, and they start naming stuff they. Bought and paid for. And she's like, but you don't pick your underwear up <gasps> in the morning. I ask you to pick up your underwear. You won't pick up your underwear. You just respect me. You don't pick up your bowl and you know after dinner and clean it up. But it took you to Paris. How I many know you? You can't fix with Paris what your underwear broke. <laughs> so I mean, you want a good marriage? Do what you do when you feel it. When you don't. Let me say it again. You want a great marriage? Here's, here it is, right here. Ready? Guys? Girls too. You want a great marriage? Real simple secret. You know when you feel it? You feel it. You're like, ha, oh, you just watched, you know, some love story. For me, it's like Braveheart. <laughs> it's like that scene where his lovers died, you know. Like, yeah. You know, you know, when you feel it, and you want to behave a certain romantic way, Do what you do when you feel it, when you don't. When you don't feel anything, behave like you do, and you'll have a great marriage. You'll have a great friendship. You'll be a great employee. You'll be a great leader if you do what you do when you don't feel it, as when you do. It's this, like watching chick flicks. I took you to Paris. (laughs) I love this quote. that um, Bill, last Sunday, he didn't even know what I was preaching on, and he leaned over during worship, which is unlike Bill. He hates the text. He hates when we talk in the front row. He just makes him crazy. But he leaned over and he shared this quote with me. And he didn't even know I was teaching on belonging last week. And he he said, Robin Williams said, people say that the worst thing in the world is to be alone. It's not true. The worst thing in the world is to be with people who make you feel alone. There's a responsibility that we have in belonging, isn't there? Isaiah 61 is my life verse. I've memorized most of the uh, Isaiah 61 chapter, but let me just read it to you in this context. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to speak release to captives and freedom of prisoners. The favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, granting all those who mourn in Zion, give them a garland instead of ashes, a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, that we might be called oaks of righteousness, that they might be called oaks of the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then, listen to this, then they, verse 4, this is the fourth verse, I just quoted the first three. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations and they will repair ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. I, I, just in the context of belonging, once I get whole, I have a responsibility to help others get whole. Once others get whole, they have a responsibility to rebuild the city see i belong not just to a people but i actually belong to a land i actually belong to a land i would like to propose to you that patriotism is actually spiritual that i actually belong to a people and i belong to a land let me give you another scripture some of you're like i don't i don't i don't you're wrong Isaiah 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until righteousness goes forth like brightness. Her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings of glory, your glory and you'll be called by a new name. There it is. How many you know? To belong, you have to have a name. A new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will be called a crown. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, royal diadem in the hand of God. Listen to this, verse 4. It will no longer be said of you that you are forsaken. Nor will your land be called desolate. But you will be called, my delight is in her, and your, land, and your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. Help me understand that you don't just have a people, you actually have a land. And your land will be called married to you, And to the Lord. (laughs) You're not wanderers. Okay, here we go. I'd like to suggest that independence has become a God. We shout freedom when maybe we should be shouting interdependence. Because we were created to be interdependent. We are individually, Romans 12... We were individually members of one another. How many know you don't lose your individuality when you become a member of someone else? But you are a member of someone else. And how you behave affects everyone else around you. It's really important that as we learn how to belong, that we actually become loyal to a place. (laughs) I know. You're shaping a city, and your city is shaping you. I did a a chapter on this in the book, Destined to Win, because I started, when I was writing, I was going to make it a paragraph, and it was, it started to become, I'm thinking we all know how this happens, it started to blow up in my spirit. I'm like, whoa, this is way bigger. And I was thinking about how your land actually empowers your destiny, and your destiny actually, um, your destiny actually redefines your land. Let me give you a couple examples. When Jacob fell asleep in a city called Luz, L-U-Z, it means almonds, probably were almond trees there, I would guess. He falls asleep with his head on a rock. I know you know the story. He has a dream. He sees angels ascending and descending, and he says, he wakes up, and he says, God was here, I didn't know it. And he said, and this place shall be called Bethel, the house of God. Interesting. From that day on, it's never called L-U-Z. His encounter with God redefined the land. (laughs) David went there. Jesus went there. Abraham went there. What I'm getting at is this. Is that that encounter that Jacob had with God actually changed... The destiny of that land and Jacob's personal encounter did something to the land in which when other people came there, they actually began to experience it and no longer was it known after its natural, uh, if you will, um, its natural, you know, what am I trying to say? It's no longer, yeah, but in the natural, it's no longer, there's a word I'm looking for, but it's no longer by its demographic. It's no longer... Defined by its natural demographic, it's now defined by its ability to have an open heaven. And from that day on, people went there to find God, and powerful things happened there. And if you look up the name Bethel, you'll see many different people came in and out of there, and all of them, uh, I shouldn't say that, many of them had encounters with God while they were there. Why? Because Jacob's personal encounter with God actually redefined what the ground was about. Abraham, get this, was looking for a city who had foundations. Follow me. Abraham was looking for a city who had foundations. What was he looking for? He wasn't looking for a people. He was actually looking for a place that had foundations and whose builder and maker was God. The word foundations, this is really interesting. I just found this tonight. Let me see. I'm so far ahead in my notes. Da-da-da-da-da. That was good. Didn't say that. The word foundation comes from the word T-H, no, T-I-T-H-E-M-I. It comes from the Greek word where we get our word theme. He was looking for a land that had a God theme. Are you with me? Listen, think about this. When, when Joshua... When Moses and Joshua, Moses is now dead, Joshua takes the people into the promised land, right? And there's, and there's 12 tribes. Did you notice that when Joshua, when he split up the land, he split up the land according to tribes and divisions. Some versions say tribes and families. So think about this. And Caleb got first pick. And Caleb said, I'll take Hebron, the land of the giants, when I was 40 years old, when we were in Canesh Barnea, Canesh Barnia means we were holy fickle. When we were holy fickle, Moses said to me, Caleb, when you get into the promised land, I'm going to give you whatever land you want. And he said, I told Moses then, I wanted the land of the giants. I wanted the land that kept everyone else out of the land. Give me the land of the giants. Joshua, I'm sorry, Caleb was from Judah. He was from the tribe of Judah, but he was from the family, obviously, of Caleb. How many understand that if you're a farmer, you're probably not going to want to go with Caleb because the hill country is not going to grow crops very well. And by the way, Caleb is not thinking about growing crops. He's thinking about killing giants. I'm saying, if you're with Caleb, you want a land that facilitates your destiny which is warring with giants. When Moses, before Moses died, there was two tribes, two and a half tribes, that were farmers. The land that they occupied, and I'm sorry, it's in the book, but I I forget the, the name of the land. But the land that they occupied on this side of the river, in other words, the promised land was on the, it was described as on the other side of the river. Are you with me? But when they came to the river, this side of the river, which technically wasn't the promised land, Two and a half tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, I think, were one of them, two of the tribes, they said, hey, this is farmland, we're farmers, we want this land. Moses said, no, 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 the promised land is on the other side of the river. They said, this is our promised land. And Moses said, all right, I'll give you the land, providing you come over, cross the river with us, help your brothers get their land, and once they get your land, their land, you can come back to this side of the river and you can have this land. Two things I'd like to say about that. First of all, sometimes your destiny is helping someone else get their land. You're like, I'm not of that tribe, but I'm going to help you get your land. But your land is, your land sustains your vision. That's why he gave them land according to their tribe and thy vision. Diverse vision. Are you with me? Let's make it practical. And I understand. If if we could just give me a little grace, I understand it doesn't have to exactly be this way. But if you wanted to be an actor or an actress, where what's the first place that comes to mind? Hollywood. There might be other places, but right, you think Hollywood, right? Why? Because the land facilitates your purpose. If you wanted to be a technologist, what's the first place that comes to mind? Silicon Valley. If you live in America, right? Silicon Valley. It's like I want to be a technologist. I'm probably not going to go to Hollywood. I mean, I could, but how many know that land's not going to sustain my vision? Do you see that God hasn't just given you a people, He's given you a place. If you want to be an actor, I'm sorry, if you want to be a model, what's the first place that comes to mind? You might want to go to New York. If you want to be a singer, especially a country singer, you want to be in... Nashville. Why? Because these places, see, people poured into the land, and the land cries out with a certain DNA. It has a theme. Are you with me? I would propose that cities that had God encounters have foundations, themes, in which God wrote the song. When Abraham was looking for a city that had a theme, he was not looking for a city that had any theme. He was looking for a city that has his theme. So good. Funny thing is, Abraham was a sojourner. He was a wanderer in the land that Isaac actually settled in. Abraham was so intent on finding the land, he actually wandered out of the very land that was promised him. When Jacob died, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. you remember this? Jacob and, and 72 of his family had to go to Egypt because of the famine. Do you remember the story at all? Maybe for some of the new believers. There was a famine in all the land. Egypt was the only one with food because of a guy named Joseph was taking care of everyone and, and selling food to the people who had no food, which was the whole known world. And so Jacob, I'm sorry, this is for some of the younger believers, whose name was changed to Israel, went into Egypt, where his son was one, the second guy in charge, and he lived there during the famine, which was seven-year famine. While he was in Egypt, he died. And the last words of Jacob to his son, Joseph, was this, don't bury me in Egypt. Take me back to the promised land. Why? Because even in death, Jacob wanted to be in his land. It's not called the promised lands, it's called the promised land. You have a responsibility to a land only way our city is going to change is if you believe it. I have six more minutes, seven more minutes, and I want to talk about our city for just a few minutes. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 14, verse 7. He said, you always have the poor with you. And he was talking to Judas, who was trying to, that was mad at uh, Mary for spending all that money on perfume and dumping it over him. And Jesus said, you always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. I always thought he was saying, there will always be poor people around. You can always, you know, spend money on them. But I'm about to die, so this is appropriate. But I heard a guy preach in a conference about a year ago, out of this verse. And he said, the original language says, you should always have the poor with you. In other words, part of a noble culture is that you keep the poor with you and you don't drive them out of your land. I'd like to suggest that in our city, they aren't, we don't have those poor people. We have our poor people. We don't have those homeless people. We have our homeless people. Now, uh, uh, I hope this... I'll, I'll, I'll fix this. Does everybody have a crazy uncle in their family? Or a crazy aunt? That you, when your friends come over, you're really good friends, especially the ones you don't know really well, you're like, oh, I hope Uncle Crazy doesn't come over. Right? And he always shows up, right? Always. Like, oh, you haven't seen him for years, but he shows up when your best friends are there, and he acts crazy. and Yeah, but isn't it true that even your Crazy uncle belongs to your family? I mean, you know, you, you, I, I, we all probably have some anxiety when he or she's around, and we're like, at probably times, if we're being honest with ourselves and authentic, we're like, I, w- I hope he doesn't show up for Christmas. Or on some special occasion, because he, he or she takes sucks so much out of the room, but he's still your family. Are you with me? When we were uh, building Global Legacy, which is our network of churches, We were trying to figure out, like, how do we... Like, there's all these churches, like, we were concerned about people going, I'm a global legacy church, and they're teaching weird stuff. Because we always teach non-weird stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And we're having this dialogue. It got really passionate one day, and David Crone, who's a part of our network, very uh, awesome, beautiful leader. He reminds me most of Bill. And David Crone said... In this, and he's kind of, he's, he's mostly a quiet man. We're sitting having this dialogue, and we're like, how do we keep the crazy people out? What if a guy starts teaching heresy, and, you know, I'm a global legacy church, and, and, you, know, and he's, you know, he's like, and, and, you know, and we're all like, yeah, he's gonna, he's, people are going to think we believe that. And, and David stepped up, when, and about an hour into the conversation, he says, everybody's got a crazy uncle. Everybody has a crazy aunt. They're still part of the family. God puts crazy people in a family, too. He puts the weird person, the, pers- the unique person, the person doesn't fit in, on and on and on. It's part of being a family, is you don't choose your family, you only choose your friends. How many of you know that we are friends with God, but we are first the family of God? <laughs> so I, I want to propose to you that we should always have the poor with us. And I want to give you a few things I wrote about, uh, about homelessness and poverty, because, uh, and I'm probably going to leave you with this. Because I really feel strongly like we have to take ownership of our land. This is our land. When someone steals something in our, in, in our land, in our city, they're stealing from each one of us. You understand how when people steal, that it raises the prices of products, it does affect you. Some of you are like, not me, I won't pay for it. Whatever. I just want to say a few things about homelessness because I feel like this is something we're moving into this year, and, and then I'll, I'll be done. Homelessness is the symptom of a greater reality. Although these people may be homeless, they are not any less citizens of our city. In the broadest sense, so, uh, in the broadest sense, society doesn't get to pick and choose its citizens. It's as wrong to it is as wrong to mentally or economically profile our citizens as it is to racially profile them. I, I'm just trying to get you to see it's like these aren't those homeless people, these are our homeless people. Number three, we don't have the right to require people to have a certain level of mentality or emotional capacity before they move into our city. Any, any more than we have to require a person to have a certain level of earning capability. Number uh, Next one, cities are tasked with establishing a culture that serves its citizens no matter what condition of life they find themselves in. The next one, a great city is a city that serves all its citizens well. Loving the poor, the broken, the helpless, and or homeless is not only our responsibility, it's our privilege. Next one. Those who have may not want the have-nots around. And sometimes there's really good reasons for that. But great cities are judged not by the lack of needy people in their community, but by their capacity to have compassion to care for them. The next one, a great community adopts their less fortunate, takes ownership of its citizens, and embraces them as valuable human beings. In fact, the greatest measure of a community is how they treat powerless people who have no recourse. Remember that all of us will live long enough. All of us who live long enough will most likely rely on others to help us in our latter years. In other words, nobility is actually tested when you, by the way you treat someone who can do nothing as a result of it. I'm saying, nobility is actually tested. See, if I mistreat a guy under the bridge, he doesn't have money to sue me. If he called the cops, they probably wouldn't come. How I treat someone who can do nothing to me in return? He can't, not only can he not invite me over and bless me, he can't actually complain about the way I talk to him, about the way I treat him, about the respect or disrespect I have with him. No one's going to listen. What I do with a person like that determines whether or not I'm noble or whether I'm not, or whether I'm just another Gentile doing what the Gentiles do. They give so they'll receive. We do not have the right nor the responsibility to hide our broken people or our poor people away in society, so that the middle class and wealthy are not inconvenienced by their mere presence um, we, we do not have the right nor the responsibility to hide our broken people or poor people away from society so that the middle class and wealthy are not inconvenienced by their mere presence come on if you 're going to be honest we 've all gone to the store where there's you know it 's cold and and the same broken people are out there, and they're like, Buddy, you got a nickel. Buddy, you got a quarter. How many of you have ever been inconvenienced? I have. How many of you have ever been st- upset because you're inconvenienced? I'll be honest. I have at times. I'm not in the mood. I'm in a hurry. Guy's following me into the store. I'm like, Dude, you know, I don't say this, but I'm thinking, Get a life. How many understand? It's good for me to be inconvenienced. I don't want to hide the poor people over here in a little place where no one can see them because how many understand in fact I'm going to say it so I'm not going to take it away poor people find themselves in this poor people who find themselves in this condition are not the not the responsibility of I'm sorry let me say it slower poor people who find themselves in this condition are not the responsibility of a few city council members nor are they the responsibility of a couple specialized ministry they are in fact the responsibility of all the citizens of the community the truth is like her and I we are all our brother's keeper the next one, mentally or emotionally, the, or the mental or emotional state of some of our more broken people may make it necessary to restrict, restrict them from congregating in certain areas or certain times. For example, around schools, or in other words, it may be, it's okay that they to set rules for people who are broken. It's okay to set boundaries. I'm saying that's not in certain cases that's not being prejudiced, right? It's just being wise. Next one, are you guys okay? Okay, next one. It is wise as citizens of a noble city to do our best to meet the real needs of these hurting people in a way that gives them a hand up and not just a hand out. Understanding that some people simply don't have capacity to help themselves. In other words, there's about probably 25% of homeless people are mentally ill. I mean seriously mentally ill and they're not going to get a hand up Because they have no capacity, mental capacity, to actually even carry on a conversation. How many know they still deserve to be loved? And the way we treat them determines whether or not we're noble. Next one. It's important for society to understand that these people need to feel wanted as much as they need substance. Rejecting them will only drive them deeper into dysfunctional state and, and prolong any kind of forward progress in community. Next one, many people don't want to extend kindness to them because they simply don't want them around their establishment or their personhood. But finding ways to help them that rewards healthy behaviors is the right solution. Next one, one of the greatest challenges we have is that broken people actually need to be in the presence of healthy people to get their needs, the needs of their souls met and to have a chance of improving their condition. This is why isolating the homeless to themselves isn't a holistic solution. In other words, they actually need you. They don't just need your money. They actually need your friendship, my friendship. They need us. They, they, they actually need mentally, emotionally, and spiritually whole people around them. Otherwise, it's like the blind leading the blind. They fall on a ditch. Next one. One of the greatest challenges we have is that broken people... Oh, i sorry. I already read that. Next one. Homeless people tend to congregate together. However, so establishing healthy places for them to have a sense of belonging, their own space, seems wise. These places of refuge should have a team of wise, compassionate overseers that can shepherd these people. These overseers need to understand the complete menu of social services available to them and have team members who can help them access these services. I'm simply saying, lots of times homeless people want to hang out with other homeless people, but how many know they need a shepherd? This is where we're going, guys. I have four more. Are you all right? And I'll be done. Next one. These overseers need to have some sort of official authority to lead these people in some healthy capacity. Next one. With the right kind of help, a large percentage of these people are capable of reestablishing themselves as healthy members of society. Understanding the root causes of brokenness in a person's life is essential to developing the right process to helping them into wholeness. Whatever you misdiagnose, you'll mistreat. Two more. It's important that we realize that the same symptom of homelessness has many different causes. It's important to realize that the same symptom of homelessness has many different causes. A one-shoe-fits-all approach to homelessness will be mildly effective at best and ineffective at worst. And the last one. Homelessness is a, is a chosen and acceptable lifestyle for some people. Not everyone wants to live the American dream. Eric... Um, quoted four scriptures today that I have on my notes and because I thought he did such a good job I didn't take a lot of time for it but I want to just I just want to re I just want to kind of re requote those. He talked about that the book of in the book of Acts, people together with one mind were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to breaking the bread and to prayer and they um, to fellowship and to prayer. And they they were got so much into community it says that there was, get this, no need among them. In the fifth chapter, it says that they began to sell their land, their stuff, and they laid it at the money at the apostles' feet. Very interesting that they're in community. How many of you know small communities? It's probably about, you know, at the time, it's probably, you know, much smaller population on the earth. So these are small communities. Everybody knows everybody. But instead of giving the money to the, per, to the person who needs it, they give the money to the apostles and let the, money, and let the apostles distribute the money, which says two things. One, they we were generous. And two, they trusted their leaders. They weren't just trying to give money to solve a problem. They were actually saying, okay, our leaders will have wisdom. What's the best way to handle this? But here is the result. And there was no need among them. What I give you at is this is that you can't have revival. You can't have his kingdom come, his will be done on earth. Without generosity, taking care of the poor, you should always have the poor with you. And our generosity has to come to a place where there is no need among us. I'd like to propose to you that Reading isn't just a place that's going to have great prosperity. Prosperity without taking care of the poor. That's, that's, that's not God. I mean, if the unemployment rate was 2% and we still had 3,000 homeless people that didn't want to be homeless, how many understand? That's not the kingdom. The wealthy can't get wealthier while the poor stay poor. I'm saying when we're wealthy, we must be generous. Kathy and I have every year increased our our generosity towards the poor. Now, I have to be honest. We give most of our big money to, to Africa because we've worked in Africa so many years. But my point is that you can't increase wealth and not be generous. It's not the kingdom. Are you with me? Our, our city's prosperity that we're about to step in 2017, will mark the first significant move into prosperity in our city. And I'm saying we have to bring the poor with us. This message is about taking ownership of our city. We have to bring the poor with us. We cannot prosper and not have it possibly affect the poor. And I'm going to tell you what happens. We have big cities that you would know the names of some of these cities, and I'll not give their names out of honor. But they strategically push the poor out of their cities so that wealthy people want to live there. And I'm saying wealthy people need the poor. And the poor need the wealthy people. This is part of nobility. And this city is not a city of one social class. This is a city of multiple social classes that live together in community, ownership, relationship, and responsibility. This is our city. Would you stand? We had a young man. His name was Davy when we were in Weaverville. Do you remember Davy? Davy was um, a mentally ill homeless guy. And he would travel from Eureka, uh, I'm not sure how far uh, north he would go, but into, up into Oregon. And he, would tra- he just traveled all around, and Davy was a really, really good man. He was about six foot four, uh, a big kid at the time, he was probably 35 years old, and he and every time he would get his paycheck because he had um, he had social security he'd get his paycheck on the first so he um, his his paycheck would come to a Eureka address so he'd travel to Eureka to get his paycheck and he would spend almost his entire paycheck within the first month I'm sorry within the first uh, ten days of his you know of his uh, of his uh, existence you know so he by the time he got to the tenth of the month or eleventh month he'd be totally out of money but he would spend his money on different costumes. So one time he came as Batman and he would believe he's Batman. He's like, "I'm Batman." And you know, and then the next time he would come as uh, he he came in a gi one time and he's like, "I'm a karate expert." And he'd 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 you know, he'd come to my auto parts store all the time and he'd hang out and the guys would chase him off and, "Hey, you you can't sit there. You know, you got to because he he'd hang out the whole time if we'd let him. So we'd kind of chase him off and I would say, "Hey, it's dinner time at six o'clock, and he'd come at three because he doesn't have a watch. I'm like, Davy, six o'clock. Come back at six. I'm taking you for dinner. And I'd bring him home, and he'd smell really bad. And Kathy'd make him get in the shower. <laughs> he'd come to my house, and well, he'd turn the water on, not get in the water. So Kathy'd be waiting for him outside the door, and he'd come out, and he, you know, he'd put a little water on his head, so he looked like he take a shower. And she'd go, Davy, you stink. Get back in there and take a shower. Here's soap. Here's a brush. Don't come out until you... And brush your teeth. So we'd buy him a toothbrush. You'd have to buy him it every time because he'd never remember to bring it. But we just... But Davey was a part of our life for probably eight, nine years. And he just... we'd, We'd see him usually probably eight, 19 times a year. And we'd bring him to our home group. And he hung out with us. And we loved him. And he had very little mental capacity to take care of himself. And, uh, and he would, you know, he would sell back the things about the 15th and 16th of the month that he bought. Hey, would you like to buy my ghee? I'm out of food. And so, you know, but it was really fun because my kids grew up with Davey. And I, I love that we brought him home. I love that he stunk. I love that he took a shower. But I just love to expose our kids to the fact that like, not everybody has the, mental, has the mental capacity to live in a house, pay bills. And have responsibility. And it's important that we honor the Davies of the world. That we love them. That they're welcome in our house. And that we're not afraid that the other business owners are going to be like, Oh, the poor hang out there. Yeah, the poor, we should have them with us. We're proud that we have the poor with us. It's part of who we are. That we help people who can't give back to us. How many will adopt that as a family, as as your family creed? That you will actually have the poor with you. That you will bless them. I'm just reminding myself, when we see them in the stores and you know, we're often inconvenienced by them, like you, we all are, let's just be real. It's important we take a minute. And we don't always give them money, we don't always buy them food. I'm saying it's always important that we make them feel they belong. The most important thing we can do is not just give them money, but make them feel you are welcome in our city. Yeah. This is your city, this isn't my city. The people that have money, we don't buy our city. We're called to this city. So I want to pray for compassion for you and me. And by the way, I'm, I'm preaching myself tonight too. I just went into a store the other day and just got ticked off by a guy. And, was like, and, I, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to preach this on Sunday. You better do something good for this guy. <laughs> Holy Spirit, we just ask that we would follow you in this. That we know when to give someone money, when to give them food, when to give them a hug. And, Lord, we know that our, our lives are full and they're busy. And we, we, we all know that we have to give something up to be more compassionate and practically honoring the poor in our city. But, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us understanding, that we would learn when to set boundaries, how to direct somebody who maybe mental capacity isn't, isn't normal, isn't healthy. And, Lord, we would also know when someone is dangerous and when they when they should be restricted from certain things, that we'd actually shepherd them, that we'd actually take time to actually shepherd them. Lord, we thank you for so many people like Angelo and Lance and Chris and these folks that have been in the streets just for years and really have made these family members. And God, we thank you for, them, for those people, but this is not their problem. This is, this is our responsibility. These are our people, and this is our city. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless our city as we take care of the poor that we should have with us always. Amen. Thank you so very much for listening. We're going to sign books out there.
2: Well, let's thank Chris one more time. That was so good. That was awesome. Well, we do want to pray for you tonight. And uh, let me, I would just encourage you, don't just let this be a message you hear on a Sunday night and then take it and, and, you know, say that was a good message. If you know, I'm, I'm a dad. If you have kids, sit down with your kids and really talk to them about what Chris shared. I think that's valuable. And, uh, and, and, and Eric said something this morning that I think is, applies to tonight, that some of the best things you can do is sit down with, with, with friends to get around a meal and talk about what God's doing. This is one of those great messages. You can sit down with friends to get around a meal and say, what are we going to do to make this a reality in our life? And that's what we want. Is that you guys okay to do that? Agree to do that? Hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to do a fire tunnel tonight. So if I can have uh, my ministry school students and my prayer ministry team, uh, as well as the staff, go ahead and come up on up here. And and then we want to make time for anybody that needs prayer for healing uh, tonight. We're going to be praying for healing in uh, the room right across the hall there. So if you you, uh, do the fire tunnel, you can go right across the hall. And uh, a few of our staff and some of our students will be over there praying for you specifically for healing. So if you need healing in your body, uh, you can go there. Uh, we're going to get this set up. It's going to take us just a few minutes. Here's how we do this. If, you've, if you're a visitor here or a guest, two lines down the middle, and then when we're ready, we'll just uh, go ahead and start. They're going to play some music, and, uh, and we'll be ready here in just a second. If you want to go, go ahead and go. Uh, feel free to do that. Hug a few people on your way out. And then as you can, if you could help us stack chairs and stacks of seven, that would be uh, super, super helpful for us. Uh, the maintenance team would really, really appreciate that. So give us just a, just a minute. And then we'll be praying for people here shortly. here in the middle two lines uh jared and tom are going to help us out right in the middle so go ahead and come on forward you guys can walk on forward whenever you're ready
1: Thank you for joining us. On our website, iBethel.org, you can find our pastor's itineraries who may be visiting a place near you. Chris Valentin will be in Pasadena, California, January 13th through the 16th. And Chris Gore will be in Shibuya, Tokyo, January 13th through the 14th. Now we want to hear from you. If you have any prayer requests, you can email them to pastor at Our team would love to pray for you. And be sure to send us your testimonies as well. We've recently heard a testimony from Chuck Perry when he was ministering in South Africa. He met a witch doctor who had a lot of control over the people in her township. One of the women in her town had gotten saved and started to invite sick people to the healing rooms at her church, and they were getting healed. The witch doctor marveled at this glowing young woman who was so bold and filled with the power and wanted to go to the healing rooms where the people in her town were getting healed. When she walked in the door of the healing rooms, she was hit with the presence of God and said, the spirit here is greater than any of the spirits that I have known. She is now saved, works in the healing rooms, and evangelizes for Jesus in her town. We pray that you would be filled with boldness and the power of God so people marvel at the spirit inside of you. May your light shine in the darkness so others will come to know the healing and salvation of God. Thanks for watching Bethel TV and joining us and our Bethel family around the world. We hope to see you again soon.